I want to thank the uh, new member of our congregation who's on the organ this morning. <laughs> We're continuing this series on lessons we learn from the exiles. And, you know, it's been some time since I've sat down and looked at this story of Daniel. You know, it's one that I always heard growing up in Sunday school and Bible school and all of that. And uh, we used to have these Hanna-Barbera cartoons uh, in which people went back, these three people went back into these Bible stories and, and experienced uh, these Bible stories alongside with the, the biblical characters. And I remember watching that video. But as I sit and read this story again this week, and as Jan was reading it aloud, just the, the radical nature of this story starts to come off the page in a new way. I think especially as we look at the world around us and we hear a little bit of the, the echoes of that story in our own time, in our own world, I, I think I start to sit up and, and pay attention and look at a greater level of detail at how these people respond to the kings, to the empires around them. And it has a challenge for our own life today. As we come to this text this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, one of the things I love about your word is that these stories have happened, but that they continue to happen, and they continue to speak into our lives. Your word is living and breathing and continues to uh, give your people guidance today. Would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what you have to bring to us this morning? It's in your name we ask it. Amen. So this morning, there's a few things kind of framing this sermon. Uh, you know, we live real lives. The, even as a pastor, I don't just sit in my office all day just pouring over the text, but we, I actually have a life and there are other responsibilities and things that we have to do out in the world. As we um, look at what's happening in the world around us, followers of Jesus are often realizing that they are out of step with the society around them. Some passages in Scripture clearly call God's people to live as called out or set apart people, living as strangers and aliens or hear what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks as exiles in a land that is not our own. Other passages clearly indicate that we are called to be at work in our world, helping to point lives and systems and kingdoms toward the real king. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few weeks. Many followers of Jesus are coming to the realization that we are once again out of step with our society, or at least that we should be out of step with some of the things happening in the world around us. If you've been watching any of the news in the last two weeks, and <clears throat> that's debatable whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for us to be watching at this point, we've seen people violently debating anti-abortion and pro-abortion, or however you want to phrase those viewpoints. 
I've even seen people suggesting that those who have abortions should face the death penalty, as if killing to teach that killing is wrong is going to work. The people of God are called to a consistent ethic of life, life for those yet to be born, life for those that are guilty, and life for those that are struggling in this world. Politicians are becoming more and more ridiculous in their partisanship, just arguing, fighting. Too often we see that beginning to spill over into the church. So there's a few things that are influencing this sermon besides what's happening in the world around us. Monday, I had to sit all day in a pastoral ethics training, along with some of our other ordained ministers. We have to sit and listen to how we should act. The definition we were given of ethics that day is, ethics is a rational, defensible process for determining the moral meaning of choices and actions. My definition, I like simple things. Ethics is how you think you should act in a given situation. It may not be what you actually do, but it's what you wish that you would do in a given situation. We talk about our ethics. This morning, I want to look at Daniel's ethics in this story. Monday, near the end of this ethics training, we had some case studies that we had to work through and, and analyze, and Daniel's story serves as a great case study, an example of some of the ethics of those that were living in exile in the empire of Babylon and Persia. By the time Daniel gets written down and starts getting passed around as inspired scripture, the Jews were then under a new empire, the Seleucid Empire. They were under a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. I mentioned him last week, who gives himself this name Epiphanes, the the manifestation of God. He had a pride issue, saw himself as the, the revelation of God. And so these stories of heroes who stand up to the empire become very near and dear to the hearts of the Jewish people. What's happening in this story of Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar, who... We met in the first couple weeks, is followed by King Belshazzar, who decides to have this giant party, and he brings out the the stemware from the the temple that they had raided in Jerusalem, and they come, and as they're partying and, and praising these gods of stone and gold and wood and all these other things, they're using the sacred vessels from the temple of Yahweh, and God sends a hand and spells out disaster for Belshazzar. And that night, Darius the Mede becomes the new king. And Darius kind of leaves some of the administrators in place, and he realizes really quick that Daniel is really good at his job. Things just seem to go well under Daniel through, through his, his hard work, his, his dedication. Things seem to prosper, and so Daniel gets elevated. Others around him become jealous of what's happening with Daniel. We start to hear echoes of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's rivals try to find something that Daniel is being dishonest at. Some way he's 
cheating the system, some corruption in Daniel's uh, business dealings or in how he's running things. Surely he's getting some money under the door or, or doing something that he shouldn't be. After all, they probably are. So they probably know from their own experience that he's got to be cheating somehow. Let's find the way that Daniel's cheating the system. And they don't find anything. They don't find anything. So they have to make something up. And so they come to the king and they get him to sign this order that no one can pray to anyone, any god or any human for 30 days. This was not an uncommon practice in the ancient world for kings to take on divine titles or perceptions. And so it's decided. The king signs it. He stamps it. No takebacks, no erases, none of that. That no one can pray to anyone but him for 30 days. And Daniel knows this. If you look at verse 10, it says, Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him just as he had done previously. It strikes me that Daniel knows what the law says. He knows what the king has signed. And he knows that a part of that decree is the consequences for breaking that law. It's written there right before him. I guess I always thought that maybe the, the lion's den thing was maybe a surprise to Daniel. But the text seems to indicate he knows fully well what he's doing. And he knows the consequences before he ever goes back to his house. It's not a surprise to Daniel. He could take a 30-day break and we probably wouldn't blame him. He could you know, buy some blinds or, you know, hang up a curtain or something. If it were me, that's what I would do. I, I would, you know, cover, you know, I'd continue to my, my prayer and I could be all right in my own mind that I've continued to pray to my God, but I've done it in secret. I've at least hit it. Daniel seems to be making an intentional decision. Now, as, as, I, as I was thinking about that this week, I wonder why does Daniel make this very clear intentional decision? Is he exposing the corruption that has happened in the empire? Is he calling into question the legitimacy of a law that has been enacted? And he says, this is a bad law and so I'm just I'm going to expose it. Maybe. But maybe he's also so focused on continuing to pray and worship to Yahweh. Like I said, if it were me, I would, I would have enjoyed being at the top. Daniel seems to have everything going right. And so if it were me, I'd say, why do I want to put that at risk? You know, I, I'll, just, I'll just fudge it here for, for a little while. I, I, you know, I'll just kind of keep things quiet because I don't want to mess things up. I enjoy the prestige and the power. Or maybe he could have hit it. I would have. There's also a part of me that wanted to, would have wanted to rise up against the empire. There's part of me that just 
burn and say, this is wrong. And, and let's, let's stick it to the man. Let's, let's get him. Let's, let's, let's rebel. There's part of me that would want to do that. This is wrong. But Daniel goes home and he continues his prayer time. And so I wonder what is the role of worship and prayer, especially in exile? Well, I think it's the same whether we're in exile or not. That worship and prayer about coming and being formed more and more into the image of God. In prayer, we come and we, we hear the voice of God calling us into our lives to praise and proclaim the good news of God. But in exile, this seems to take on a special significance when not everyone else in the empire is praying or worshiping the same thing, when Daniel goes and he prays to Yahweh, this is different and strange, and it begins to put him at odds with the world and with the society and with the empire around him. Sometimes I think we wonder if worship here on Sunday morning or prayer, whether you wake up in the morning and pray, or you pray before you, you go to bed, or you pray throughout the day. I think sometimes we wonder if this makes any difference in the world around us. How does us gathering and, and worshiping and, and singing and, and praying on Sunday morning here at Spring Creek, how does this make any difference for the people out there? I think we wonder that. Sometimes we as Christians want to take on bigger things than prayer and worship. I think there's a lot of ways that we attempt to change things in the empire around us. When, when we see things that we disagree with in our society, what do we try and do? Well, One thing that Daniel could have done is try to take back Babylon for God, although God seems to have no interest in taking back Babylon. He's got his own kingdom. He doesn't need Babylon. They could have started a protest march. Have a cow, we won't bow. Foreign God, gee, that's odd. Done their picket signs and marched around Babylon. There may come a time to stand with the vulnerable in our society in a show of solidarity. And there are certainly times when Christians can and should engage in some form of dis civil disobedience in nonviolent, non-resistant ways. But what's fascinating to me is how pivotal worship and prayer are here to Daniel. You know, what we saw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was a refusal to worship the idols. They worshiped Yahweh. Their trust and their faithfulness and the miraculous rescue begin to change the heart of the king. And here in this story, Daniel doesn't give up his prayer time with God. He doesn't hide it. And he knows fully well that it's going to cost him at some point. The king is devastated when he realizes that this law will put Daniel in the lion's den. It, it, he seems to run around and, and see if there's some way that he can change what's, what's happened, but even the king is bound by this law at, the, at this point. And when Daniel is rescued, the king is giving praise to God. See, our worship and our prayer 
are about being formed into the image of Christ. And so Christian prayer and worship is peculiar in exile. It doesn't worship the idols of Nebuchadnezzar, and it doesn't pray to King Darius. But often we are tempted to act in ways that reflect the empire. And even as the church, we look at the shortcuts of force or coercion or even violent thoughts, demonizing the other side. But if we allow ourselves to be changed by worship and by prayer and allow the Spirit to enter our lives, to hear the voice of God and to follow Christ's example is different. So how do we pray in exile? Daniel prays facing God. It says his window looked out to, toward Jerusalem, which had the temple. They believed that God resided in that place, and so Daniel goes and he faces God. He keeps his eyes looking at God. I love that Daniel opens the window, and I wonder what he could see from his window. He surely couldn't see all the way to Jerusalem. It's way too far off. So as he looks out his window, what does he see around him? I wonder if he prayed for those that passed, for the city that he could see. I wonder if he prayed for the people and the relationships around him. We might pray that others around us that we are in relationship with may come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We can pray for the emperor, for the, the king or the, the president to fulfill their duty of maintaining order and seeking good over evil. We can pray for broken systems in our world. We could pray and worship and seek the mind of Christ. Daniel probably used words from the, the Torah in his prayers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, reminding himself that there is no other God. That God is one, and it's not Darius, it's not Nebuchadnezzar before him, and it's not any king that's going to come after them. We would do well to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a radical prayer. That prayer alone has the power to shape and mold us into the one who taught us to pray that way. Or else we remind ourselves daily to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as yourself. See, Daniel wasn't about to give up praying to Yahweh, even if it meant facing the lions, even if it possibly meant his own death, he wasn't going to give it up. <clears throat> Daniel has the option of praying to the king or praying to God chooses to maintain his prayer time. Jesus tells us that we cannot serve, worship, or pray to two masters. 
Daniel knows where his faithfulness lies, and he will not give in. And his faithfulness, his boldness, and Daniel's commitment to God becomes contagious. It impacts, impacts Darius in a very real way. At the end of the scripture text that we read this morning, Darius makes this decree that in all my royal dominion, people should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, for he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. I heard someone say this week that our natural response to stress or to danger around us is fight, flight, or freeze. Daniel could have launched a, a Jewish rebellion. He could have said, there's no way we're going to bow any longer. We won't pray to anyone but our God. He could have run from the king. He could have run from the situation. He could have abandoned his position in the kingdom and his witness in the kingdom. Or else Daniel could have been caught simply doing nothing. I think that happens to us. We see what's going on in the world around us and we haven't really put a lot of thought into how we should respond as, as the church, as, as faithful followers of Jesus. And we go, I, uh, um, I, uh, and we just freeze. We haven't given serious consideration to what our life together as the body of Christ or as individuals that are called out people. We think there must be all kinds of new and different ways of responding to the empire. And there are new and different ways that we should consider of reacting to what's happening around us. And we'll talk about this more in a few weeks. But I think in Daniel's story, what we see is that knowing full well that his continued faithful prayer is at odds with the empire, he shows us that we cannot neglect faithful prayer and worship. Let us not give up those practices which continue to place us in front of a living, powerful, loving God who molds and shapes and sharpens our lives. In John's revelation, he writes to the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship. Possibly these believers are once again facing lions of empire. Enduring hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In exile, there's all kinds of opportunities for us to be a witness. There's all kinds of people around us who don't know anything about Jesus. And this is an opportunity for us, for the church to go and to proclaim the good news of Jesus. There was a time in, in American history where, you know, a lot of people heard 
the story of Jesus. And so you know, evangelism was kind of a, a strange thing when everybody kind of knew the story of Jesus. But not everybody knows that story now. And so it's an opportunity for us to share and to be witnesses. But I will remind us that the Greek word for witness is martyr. There may come time where the body of Christ needs to stand up boldly against the powers of empire or call into question the practices of empire. But we cannot abandon coming into intimate times of prayer and worship with our first love, Jesus Christ. We cannot give up meeting together being together and being formed into the image of Jesus together as we pray and as we worship the one true God.